We have in chapter 1 of the book of Galatians the Apostle Paul's call to his ministry, his greeting, and unlike many of the letters of the Apostle Paul, he launches into a curse on false gospels right from the beginning and gives proof of his divine call and therefore of his doctrine taught. Hear now the reading of God's holy word inspired by his spirit and profitable for us, Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me, unto the churches of Galatia. Grace be to you in peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James the Lord's brother." Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God, I lie not. Afterwards, I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth a faith which once he destroyed, and they glorified God in me." Thus far the reading of God's inspired word, Galatians chapter 1. This book of Galatians is themed around the righteousness of God received by faith without works. It is from the Apostle Paul, 
written to the churches, he says, of Galatia. Now, Galatia is not necessarily like one state. It's a collection of states in what we might consider to be modern-day Turkey, or at least that area. In the book of Acts, you'll read about Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. These are all metropolitan areas in the region of Galatia, the larger region. You can read about Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13, verse 14 through chapter 14, verse 24. Iconium, Acts 16, 5 and 6, and also chapter 18, verse 23. And then Lystrian Derba, or Derby, Lystrian Derby, Acts 13, verses 38 and 39, where we read the gospel he preached unto them. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. So here is the gospel in a nutshell. How is a man justified or declared righteous before God? This is the gospel he preached unto them. It's not by keeping the law, the law Moses delivered. Well, what laws did we have in Moses? The law of Moses can refer to all five books. It can refer to those moral commandments of the Ten Commandments. It can refer to all 613 commandments. Well, which is it? The answer is yes. Man cannot be justified by keeping the Ten Commandments. Man cannot be justified by keeping the ceremonies. Man cannot be justified by keeping the festivals. He cannot be justified by keeping the judicial statutes. He can't be justified by doing everything in the first five books of the Bible. Man cannot be justified by law. He cannot keep commandments. He cannot do things. He cannot make and produce works by which God will say, Oh, I see. I'll forgive all your sins because you did these good things over here. God cannot do that. God is just. So he preached this gospel to them. And he's writing to these churches of Galatia. I believe these are city or presbyterial churches, collections of local churches, in other words. Now... We have the theme also, not merely of the gospel, but of the legitimacy of Paul's apostleship. If he's a false apostle, then his gospel is false. If he's a true apostle, then his gospel is true. That's how he's reasoning it out. And that was the accusation. He preaches a false gospel because he's a false apostle. And we'll see in chapter 1 and especially chapter 2, Paul's going to prove, no, the gospel that I preach is the same as the gospel Peter preached, is the same as the gospel James and John preached. Same gospel, different fields of labor. We'll see that in chapter 2, God willing, next week. So we have in this book, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 15, the historical part of the book concerning himself and the course of his ministry, mostly historical. Then chapter 2, verse 16, through chapter 5, verse 13, doctrines, mostly doctrinal, especially concerning justification by faith without works or faith alone, and the abolition of the ceremonies of Moses. Now, this is because the Judaizers tied together justification by works with circumcision. You see this in Acts 15. So they tied together circumcision, which is the beginning of the law of Moses, with all the other statutes, moral, judicial, and ceremonial, tied them up with a knot and said, if you don't keep these, you cannot be saved. And so here, 
the apostle will give us in chapter 2, 16 through 5, 13, the abrogation of that entire system that the Jews had built up on top of Moses by which they sought justification by works. Then in chapter 5, verse 14 through chapter 6, verse 18, we have the duties required by God. God gives us first the history, then the doctrines, then the duties. How should Christians walk in the Spirit? He gives us exactly what that looks like in those portions of Scripture. Now, chapter 1. He has an urgent preface, his apostolic call, and a summary of the gospel in verses 1 through 5. Notice there verse 1. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, not of men. He wasn't ordained to become an apostle. Remember, how did he become an apostle? Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. He was called by revelation of Jesus Christ, not through a council down in Jerusalem or in Antioch. No, he was called directly. And he says, God the Father. Not by man, not by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. And God the Father, he renames him. This is common in the New Testament. He'll say, this person, who did this? And it's a way of renaming. It's a circumlocution, as we call it. It's a talking around the matter. It's a giving of a title. Who is the Father? Who raised him from the dead? God the Father's name is he who raised the Son from the dead. That's his name. That's how we ought to think of the Father. Not as someone distant that Christ is our real salvation and the Father is kind of second place. No. He's the one who raised Jesus. He's the one who gave him for us. The Father in heaven. Unto the churches, he says, of Galatia. Again, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, and other places. Each one a collection of churches, and this error had spread far and wide. That's what he's pointing out. All the churches of Galatia, you'll notice usually it's to one church, right? The church at Ephesus, the church at Rome. No, this is to all of this, these regional churches because this error had spread wide and far. Verse 3, he wishes them grace and peace. Then he refers to our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 4. He gets right to the heart of the matter. Who gave himself for our sins. This again is a name of Christ. He's renaming the Savior so that we can think of him in this way. Who is Jesus Christ? He who gave himself for our sins. This is his name. This excludes the works of men, does it not? Who is it that gave Christ for our sins? Did we give him? No, he gave himself for our sins to put an end to the curse of the law, in other words. According to the will of God and our Father, the Father chose and purposed this. He designed this whole scheme of salvation. Christ accomplishes the purpose of the Father and the Spirit applies that redemption. I note then this doctrine. It is only Christ's self-giving that can accomplish salvation. How can our sins be forgiven? Only because Christ gave himself for our sins. How can we be delivered from the present evil world? Only because God purposed to deliver us through his Son. Let us then console ourselves with this thought. Salvation is of the Lord. He gets the credit. He gets the glory. Since the work and the power are his alone, therefore the glory is his. In the Latin terms of the Reformation, it is 
Solo Cristo, only by Christ as mediator. Sola gratia, only by the grace of God we're justified and saved. Soli Deo Gloria, it is only to the glory of God that we are saved. And so verse 5, to whom be glory forever and ever. Then verses 6 through 9, we have the severe correction and the anathemas of those who fell away from the faith, those who brought in different gospels. He says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you. Now, this is very important. Many people will say, well, I won't believe something unless the church fathers taught it in the second, third, fourth, or maybe even the eighth century. They'll look to some father of the church and they'll say, well, the fathers unanimously declared thus and such. And you have to ask yourself, in the days of the apostles, could we, if we had writings from these fathers of the church who are not apostles, could we rely on their words? Could we say, they're a standard for my faith? Look what he says. I marvel, I am amazed at how quickly, having received the truth, you turned away from it. Can we rely on men? Even men in the church? Even men in the church in the days of the apostles themselves? No. There is no golden age of the church, and to expect such is foolish and idolatrous. While the apostles were yet ministering the gospel, heresy, antichrist, was slipping in. Do we think that would get better as time went on? Do we think that now that the apostles were gone, everybody would straighten up? No. We should expect the opposite. We should expect things to get worse after the days of the apostles. And guess what? It did. Now notice here, he says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you. People will say, well, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus, doctrine doesn't really matter. Does the scripture agree with that idea? No. Because he's going to say, these doctrines that you have accepted, they remove you from him who called you. We do not make a division between believing in Jesus as a personal relationship and believing doctrinal propositions about the work of Christ for us. That's called neo-orthodoxy. A new orthodoxy that says, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. As long as we hold hands and sing Kumbaya, everything will be fine. It'll be okay. You know, they might not believe that we're saved the same way, but it's not like they've departed from Jesus. They still say they believe in Jesus. That's not the apostles' attitude in the least. If you depart from the propositions of the gospel, those statements made in the preaching of God's word, you depart from Jesus himself. We must then reject a sentimental toleration for false gospels. No one loves Jesus or has a personal relationship with God who does not believe the apostolic gospel. They might have a personal relationship with a figment of their imagination, they might have a demon that they worship that they call Jesus, but if they don't believe the gospel preached by the apostles, they do not know God. Period. Full stop. Now, 
He says that they came to believe this other gospel, he says. You've removed so quickly from the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Then he says this, which is not another. Well, which is it? Is it another gospel? Or is it not another gospel? Which is it, Paul? Now, there are two words in the Greek New Testament. One is heteros, hetero, we use in English. It means that which is of a different kind. Another thing that is different, heteros. Then there is another word which means another thing of the same kind. What Paul says is, you have removed from him, from the grace of Christ, unto another gospel of a whole different kind, which is not another gospel of the same kind. That's what he's saying. You left for a hetero gospel. You are hetero evangelicals, in other words, rather than Allah evangelicals. You don't believe a different gospel of the same kind. There actually is no different gospel. There's only one. And this is what he's talking about. He says that these who have this other gospel, it's not another of the same kind, they pervert, they twist the gospel of Christ. They alter it. They cause it to be different. Now, perversion, we usually think of as subtlety. It's not outright opposition. Perversion is where you take something and you twist it, as Peter says they do to the scriptures. Those who are unstable, unlearned, they twist the scriptures. That's the idea of perversion. A very subtle error is brought in, in other words. Just a little difference in the propositions. Just a little difference. In fact, in the early church, they had a big dispute over what we call a diphthong, a collection of two letters. Is Jesus homoousis or homoousis? Is he of a similar substance with the Father, or is he of the identical substance with the Father? The Bible says he's the identical substance, homoousis. The heretics said homoousis, he's like the Father. Well, why are you arguing over diphthongs? What's the big deal? Well, if God died for us, that's one thing. If someone who's like God dies for us, there's no redemption. There's no salvation. The whole thing is off. Is Christ God, like God, or actually God? We affirm he is actually God. The perversion happened on adding the letter iota to the equation. This is a perversion, a different set of propositions. Verse 8, Though we, me Paul, these who are here with me, approving of my letter to you, though we, or an angel sent down from heaven above, glistering and shining, striking all into your hearts. If we come back or an angel comes and they preach something different, different set of doctrines, what should you do to them? Anathema, he says. This comes from a word which means to place something on the altar. And when you anathema, you completely devote it to the altar. You will not take it back. It's completely devoted to be destroyed on the altar. Take these people, whether myself or an angel, put them on the devotion altar to destruction. Anathematize them, curse them. Let them be cursed by God if they preach little different gospel, just enough to be the different gospel he's talking about. Let them be accursed. 
Then he repeats it. Verse 9, For solemnity, as we said before, so say I now again, if any preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. I note then that doctrinal propositions which we receive and promote have eternal consequences. Doctrinal propositions that we receive, believe, and promote have eternal consequences. Those that are extra, outside of what the apostles preached, those that are twisted versions of what the apostles preached, these things about the good news and the forgiveness of sins in Christ alone, by faith alone, without our works, those are damnable. They have eternal consequences. It's not a small deal. It's not a tizzy in a teacup, a mountain out of a molehill. No. Very important. Let us then hold fast to the sound words delivered in the gospel. Let us not trust to our works or the traditions of men, but to the merits of Christ, what he accomplished, what he deserves, what he did in our place, and that tradition that God handed down where? In the Bible, not in something oral as the Jews or the Christianizing Jews believe, but in the scriptures themselves, the apostolic divine tradition inspired by God, passed down to us in the Bible. Then verses 10 through 24, the apostle gives the proof of his apostolic calling. If he says, if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. He could not serve two masters. He's not here to placate these false apostles. He's not going to play games with them. He's going to speak the truth. He's not going to fear man, which brings a snare. Let us fear God as he did. Let us seek to please God. Let us devote our lives to the Lord, come what may. Let the chips fall where they may. Do your duty and leave the the results to God. Let us seek to please God in our speech, in our priorities, in the doctrines we believe, in our affections, in our parenting, in marital choices. Young people, are you going to fear God? Or are you going to seek to please yourself? Because the fear of man, what does it do? When you show reverence for creatures above God, what will that do to you? It's a snare. It's a trap. You think you're getting the good thing inside of the snare? That's how you get an animal to go in a snare. You put something there that they want. And once they get in, what happens? Trapped. Can't move. Because you thought you'd get that thing you wanted. So the fear of man, it brings a snare. Paul did not fear man. He feared God. He sought to please God. He sought to be a slave of Jesus Christ. But I certify you, he says, in verse 11, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. It's not according to traditions of men. Neither received it of man, he says. Neither was I taught it. Now, in ordinary discourse and means, in the use that God makes of the means of grace, this is how it happens. We learn of men. We are ordained, I am ordained by men. Now, I might be called by God, but also I am ordained by men. Paul was not ordained by any man. No presbytery laid their hands on him and said, now become an apostle. He had an extraordinary calling that is not with the ordinary means. He wasn't taught by a pastor growing up the gospel. Jesus revealed it directly to him by revelation. This is very unusual. Now, Christ our Lord was not taught either. He didn't go to school. 
His disciples were taught by him. Paul was taught by him directly by revelation. But your ordinary pastors, Timothy, how was he taught? Well, Paul says, I taught you in the presence of many witnesses. You pass that on to other men who will be faithful so that they may teach others by men. Those are the ordinary means. Paul says there were no ordinary means. It was by, by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Direct revelation, inspiration from God. Then verses 13 and 14, he gives us his former conversation as a Jew in Judaism. He says he was more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of his fathers. A tradition is something handed down to you, and then you take it, and what do you do with it? You hand it down to the next guy. That's a tradition. We have the apostolic and prophetic traditions in the Bible. Then we have the traditions of men. And Paul says the Jews, they had the Bible, but they had their traditions. They had them handed down. Where? From God? No, from their fathers. But did you know that the Jews said that their father's traditions were actually from Moses? Yep, that's right. Moses gave us the written word, but the really important stuff he kept for word of mouth. I'm not going to write it down. I'm going to tell the elders who will tell the next generation, who will tell the next generation. Now, if you've read the Bible... Is that true that the Jews had a tradition passed down? Can you prove that from the scriptures? What does the scripture say the elders of the Jews did? Were they godly people? Did they fear the Lord? No! Wicked, godless, idol-worshipping, taken into captivity because they hated God so much. Do you think we can trust their traditions then? Of course not. Now, the, the Christianizing version of Judaism says, oh yeah, we got the writings of the apostles, but guess what else we got? Oral tradition passed down. Now, what's the similarity there? Both of them are disobedient to the actual traditions of God, and they make up their own. And how can you argue? Well, it's an apostolic tradition handed down. Prove it. Don't have to. It's apostolic. See, I don't have to prove it. You lose. That's called begging the question. It's a massive fallacy to say, I'm going to assume what I have to prove to you. Prove it. I can prove my tradition. It's right here in writing. Can you prove yours? Oh, well, the apostle... Nope. Hold on. You got to prove it. Prove it here. I don't accept your authority. I don't accept your, oh, thus saith the fathers. That's what he had. Judaism and Christianized Judaism both have the word of God rejected in the place of the word of God is put, the traditions of the fathers. Paul was exceedingly zealous. This is his characteristic of belief. Whatever the traditions of my fathers say, I will zealously pursue that. Not the word of God, not the truth of scripture, the traditions of the fathers. Let us be wary of the things that men hand down to us. Can they prove it from the law and the apostles? If they can't, I don't want to hear it. But when it pleased God, though he was so zealous for the traditions of men, when it pleased God, not when it pleased Paul, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. This is God's name. This is another circumlocution, another periphrase about God. 
the one separating me and calling me by his grace. That's who God is. God is the one who determined the very moment I would leave my mother's womb. He determined exactly when he would call me by his grace. I was not seeking after him. It was not my will that overcame God. It's not that God cast his vote and the devil cast his vote and I cast the deciding vote and I have a super majority because it's two against one. No, God, when he determined to call him, that moment God overcame him. This is the marvel of God's grace who takes a wretch like the Apostle Paul, zealous for man's traditions, hating and wasting the church, such a one God called. Do you think that Paul was justified by works? Was he justified by being circumcised? Was he justified by loving God and keeping his commandments? Well, that's why he's bringing it up. Because he had nothing to offer to God. He was running against the Lord. When it pleased the Father to reveal his Son in me, that's when he was called. Then verses 17 through 24, we have the chronology and history of the confirmation of his calling. He went down to Jerusalem. He says he saw uh, James, the Lord's brother, when he went to see Peter. Now, just as a sidelight, in terms of man-made traditions, Mary's not supposed to have had any children. Although it names them, it calls them in Matthew 13, 55, James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas. Mark 6, 3, it says the same exact names, plus it says sisters. That means our Lord Jesus Christ and Mary and Joseph had additional siblings for Jesus. She was not ever virgin, as the traditions of men say. The seventh commandment would have been violated by Mary. She would have been lawless. Does grace abolish nature? Are the duties of the seventh commandment set aside because God miraculously put a baby who is fully God in her womb? Could she deprive her husband of his rights of marriage? It's ridiculous. Let us shun these doctrines of commandments of men. Let us believe in the words of God. James was the brother of our Lord. He's mentioned in the Gospels, and there's no reason to think he's not his brother. He's his cousin. It mentions mom and dad and brothers and sisters. Do you think that means cousins in that context? If you do, you're a moron. It's not the ordinary usage of language. There's no reason in the Bible to think otherwise. Verse 20. He again shows the severity of what he's saying. The things which I write unto you, behold, before God I lie not. Before God, in his face, He can certify that I'm telling you the truth. And once the apostle who once persecuted the church is known to be converted and preaching the faith he once destroyed, did they say, Paul, come forward. We'd like to give you a round of applause for accepting Jesus. Way to go, Paul. Is that what they did? They glorified who? God in me. God, by his grace, saved me. And therefore, this false gospel falls to the ground. Paul's calling to the ministry. The circumstances that he came to know Christ prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is only by the free grace of God that we are saved. It is only of his good pleasure that we are called. It is his saving power. It is the glory of God, not of men in the gospel that we celebrate. 
And this is the theme of Galatians. Thus far, chapter 1 of Galatians.